0: Man it feels good to be living eternally I'm forgiven without a care in the world Just catch me coasting and dipping catch me moving around I love exploring this world in and out of my town now walk around Hey what's with up the
1: guys? Welcome to that, that postal podcast where contrary to what John Higgy says. It's the end of the world as we know it We all feel fine <laughs> Didn't
2: somebody else say that too? Yeah, I, I was that. gonna
1: play the song, but uh, I found when I Googled it, I, I tried to Google that sound, sound clip of the song, know. yeah, by R.E.M. I, that was like one of the top hits. Was that I was like soundbite? I'm like, oh, perfect, and it was John Hagee. I'm like, oh, I'm just
3: gonna play that, dude. John John Hagee has become so like that. That's his bread and butter, basically. His bread and butter is Blood Moons and predicting like the Rapture and the Antichrist, and I, and it's so funny that all these guys have these careers of like 30 40 years of doing the same thing and being wrong all the time and all they do is get more famous and more money and more followers it's it's like if you were a weatherman and you were wrong after a few times you're going to be out of a job like no one's going to trust you but like in our our culture is so screwy that you can <laughs> you can cry Fire in a movie theater like a million times and never be a fire and people just keep giving you more money and trusting you more like it's it's sad it's ridiculous. John Hagee's one of those he one of those one of those. I don't know. Should I say it? I, I don't know. I, I think I think the term is uh I've never said this on air but he might be a false prophet. I don't know. He might be. <gasps> mm-hmm.
2: What does the Bible say to do to false prophets? Well, definitely don't
3: listen to them. Don't follow them on Twitter. Yeah, definitely don't ignore don't, – just don't listen to them. Come on, guys. America, wake up. And I don't mean wake up because there's blood moves. I mean wake up because there's scriptures that tell
2: us. I think that at bare minimum, uh, if somebody makes false predictions like that, they should be um, expelled from their pulpit and never allowed to be in the ministry again.
3: There needs to be discipline and accountability. Amen. I mean absolutely at, at bare minimum. Um, what happens when a prophet prophesies and is wrong? Put him to death is what that says. Right. And yeah. in, well, a false prophet. Not, a pr- false prophet would still be exposed as a false prophet, even if their predictions came to pass, according to Jeremiah as well. Because um, being basically unbiblical and violating God's law means you're a false prophet as well. You you, you, can, you might get a few a few predictions right, but that's called, that's just sorcery.
2: What What I was talking about is the place where it says uh, if a prophet says that something's going to happen and it doesn't happen that way, don't be afraid of them, because obviously the Lord's not with them. And then it says the punishment for foretelling something that did not come to pass was ex- to be stoned, put to death. So obviously it's a really serious thing and it should not be taken lightly that people are attempting to foretell the future. Um, it's b- People call themselves Christians and say things like that. You can almost automatically just ignore them.
3: There's so, there's so many like, Christians that I meet that are so, like, so dear to me and, you, and, the, and they – you know they they're dedicated to the Lord, um, but not, and and I got to be real careful. But I, I I see a I see a sincerity in them. I, they do a lot of good. They uh, they you know they they're quick to talk about Jesus and they love Christ and they're really uh, into their church. But man, they, they they've just, they've been discipled and brought up this really false understanding of just anything whatsoever that is biblical, um, and they it, it just really. My heart goes out to them because how much it takes for them to have to rethink uh, and have a paradigm shift. But then, but then I have hope because I was in a similar boat. and um, it Basically, as we continue to do things like this, um, do things like we do in our local churches, wherever we're at, spread across the, the entire country. Um, as, as we continue to be faithful and, and encourage our elders and our leaders also who are doing that, who have a bigger, maybe a bigger audience than we do. More people, people will listen um, i just I just know that when that hearts can be changed and paradigm shifts can happen, um, but in the meantime it 's frustrating because we see like the phil Phil heggies and like people get mad at Joe Olstein, and I get it, but man like i 'm sorry that dude does not get my blood going like when I hear John Hagee, Um or Leslie Hale or any of these guys that are so freaking rich off of off of false. Predictions. So, John, I'm really
2: concerned because you have the same initials as John Hagee.
3: You know what? Um, yeah, that's a sign right there. I mean, I can't. I see blood moons all the time, and I just have I'm to, no profit. But I just. Have
1: to... <laughs> <laughs> so when 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 you said when you guys said sorcery, um, Colin, I think it was you, it made me think of something. My a conversation I saw somebody having recently, um, where they were asking if was it actually samuel that was summoned or was it um i don't know some was it was an actual sorcery was it actual something that happened where he actually came from heaven or was it an illusion or was it a demon or and it i mean some of it seemed like what it says it was him so
3: it was him
2: i think i'm only. i i think i'm only remotely familiar with the passage you're talking about and i can't remember
3: what it says I mean, Samuel was definitely ticked that he was summoned. <laughs> like, he wasn't happy. Um,
1: so in First Samuel 28, Saul talks with Samuel's ghost. Verse 10, Saul replied, I swear by the living Lord that nothing will happen to you because of this. The woman who was the, the woman at Endor. Who do you want me to bring up? She asked. Bring up the ghost of Samuel, he answered. This is C.E.V. so it's going to sound weird, maybe. Um, when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. Then she turned to Saul and said, you've tricked me, you're the king. Don't be afraid, Saul replied, just tell me what you see. She answered, I see a spirit rising up out of the ground. What does it look like? It looks like an old man wearing a robe. Saul knew it was Samuel, so he bowed down low. Why are you bothering me by bringing me up like this, Samuel asked.
2: Give me a sec to look up Calvin's commentary, see if I can find out what he says. I have no idea.
1: I've always been skeptical, because it's like, well, how how would that actually work? But then, you know, if it... If it scripture says it was it quotes samuel samuel said if the lord has turned away from you and is now your enemy don't ask me to do don't ask me what to do i've already told you the lord has sworn to take the kingdom from you and give it to david and that's just what he's doing so it's i mean it's samuel speaking to him saying i've already told you this but if samuel if samuel's you know says he's saying speaking to him and he's saying i've already told you this makes it seem like it is actually samuel because he's you know recalling past conversations
2: doesn't look like Calvin has any commentary on it. I have no idea.
1: Do we even want to look at gotquestions.org? No. <laughs> they say the passage does not give us any reason to believe it was anyone other than Samuel. So taking it at, at face value.
2: I'm looking up uh I'm looking up Matthew Henry. We have here the conference between Saul and Satan. Saul came in disguise, but Satan soon discovered him. Satan comes in disguise in the disguise of Samuel's mantle, and Saul cannot discover him. Such is the disadvantage we labor under in wrestling with the rulers of the darkness in, of this world they, that they know us while well, we are ignorant of their wiles and devices. The specter or apparition personating Samuel asks why he is sent for. Why hast thou disquieted bring, me to bring me up? To us, this discovers that it was an evil spirit that personated Samuel, for as Bishop Patrick observes, it is not the power of witches to disturb the rest of good men and to bring them back into the world when they please, nor would the true Samuel have acknowledged such a power in magical arts. But to Saul, this was a proper device of Satan, to draw veneration from him, to possess him with an opinion of the power of divination, and so to rivet him in the devil's interests. Saul makes his complaint to this counterfeit Samuel, mistaking him for the true, and a, most, and a most doleful complaint it is. I am sorely distressed, and know not what to do. For the Philistines make war against me, yet I should do well enough with them, if I had but the tokens of God's presence with me. But alas, God has departed from me. He complained not of God's withdrawings, till he fell into trouble, till the Philistines made war against him. And then he began to lament God's departure and that, in his prosperity, inquired not after God, in his adversity, thought it hard that God answered him not, nor took any notice of his inquiries either by dreams or prophets, neither gave answers immediately himself, nor sent them by any of his messengers. He is not like a penitent, to own the righteousness of God in this, but like a man enraged, flies out against God as unkind and flies off from him. Therefore I have called thee, as if Samuel, a servant of God, would favor those whom God frowned upon, or as if a dead prophet could do him more service than the living ones. One would think from this that he really desired to meet with the devil and expect no other, though under the the covert of Samuel's name, for he desires advice otherwise than from God. Therefore the devil, who is rival from God, God denies me, therefore I come to thee. And then he quotes it in Latin. If I fail with heaven, I will move hell. It is cold comfort which this evil spirit in Samuel's mantle gives to Saul and is manifestly intended to drive him to despair and self-murder. Had it been the true Samuel, when Saul desired to be told what he should do, he would have told him to repent and make his peace with God and recalled David from his banishment and would then have told him that he might hope in this way to find mercy with God, but instead of that he represents his case as hope helpless and hopeless, serving him as he did Judas, to whom he was the first tempter, and then a tormentor, persuading him f- first to sell his master and then to hang himself. He braids himself up with his present distress, tells him not only that God had departed from him, but that he had become his enemy, and therefore he must expect no comfortable answer from him. Wherefore dost thou ask me, how can I be thy friend when God is thy enemy, or thy counselor when he has left thee? He upbraids him with the anointing of David to the kingdom. He could not have touched upon a string that sounded more unpleasant in the ear of Saul than this nothing is said to reconcile him to David but all tends rather to exasperate him against David to widen and and widen the breach yet to make him believe that he was Samuel the apparition affirmed that it that it was God who spoke by him the devil knows how to speak with an air of religion and can teach false apostles to transform themselves into the apostle and to the apostles of Christ and imitate their language. Those who use spells and charms and plead in defense of them that they find nothing in them but what is good may remember what good works the devil here spoke. And yet with a malicious design, he upbraids him with his disobedience to the command of God in not destroying the Amalekites. Satan had helped him to pal... Palliate and excuse that sin when Samuel was dealing with him to bring him to repentance, but he now aggravates it to make him despair of God's mercy. See what those get that hearken to Satan's temptations. He himself will be their accuser, accuser, and assault over them. And see whom those resemble that allure,s that allure others to that which is evil, and reproach them for it when they have done. He foretells his approaching ruin, that his army should be routed by the Philistines. This is twice mentioned. The Lord shall deliver Israel into the hand of the Philistines. This he might foresee by considering the superior strength and number of the Philistines, the weakness of the armies of Israel, Saul's terror, and especially God's departure from them. Yet to personate a prophet, he gravely ascribes it once again to God. The Lord shall do it, that he and his sons should be slain in the battle. Tomorrow, that is in a little time, In supposing that it was now after midnight, I see not but it may be taken strictly for the very next day after which it had now begun. Thou and thy sons shall be with me, that is, in the state of the dead, separate from the body. Had this been the true Samuel, he could have not foretold the event unless God had revealed it to him, and though it were an evil spirit, God might by him foretell it, as we read of an evil spirit that foresaw Ahab's fall at Ramoth-Gilead. And it was instrumental in it, as perhaps this evil spirit was by the divine permission in Saul's destruction. That evil spirit flattered Ahab, this frightening Saul, and both that they might fall. So miserable are those that are under the power of Satan. For whether he rage or laugh, there is no rest. Proverbs twenty nine nine. So seems that Matthew Henry, in his commentary, believes that it was actually Satan himself.
3: Yeah. Well. The, yeah. I mean, bottom line from this passage, we see that. Um... You know, conjuring the dead, act, act, acting as a medium, summoning spirits—I mean, it's 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 sin, it's it's abomination, and it's it's wrong to do that. We, uh, we see this elsewhere too in Levitical law, with with the understanding that you, that one should not cut themselves for the dead.
2: Yeah, divinations and
3: sorceries were all uh, forms of idolatry—that just bad news. But this this kind of thing, um, just like for example, like when someone who, a sorcerer it's a correct prediction it doesn't mean oh now they're okay and and the scriptures uh the scriptures give the standard for for a true prophet being that yeah not only what they say comes to pass but also they have correct doctrine basically that they they honor god's law um and so that's what we have to see so when we have this all these predictions and and in times like um chaos and everything we, we really need to, to Go to the scriptures, just like with all things. And America is so, man. It's like it's like a bad relationship. You keep going back to it over and over and over. Like as as a culture, keep getting deceived and jacked up and all interested in everything but the truth. And the truth is so much more exciting. The truth is so much more exciting than Apache helicopters, which uh, people say is what the locusts are in Revelation, or. With Israel rebuilding a temple exactly as it's supposed to, or with some some suave, sophisticated either politician or businessman antichrist rising up and, and the, the the truth is, and here's the truth. The truth is that the that the Lord of heaven and earth sent his son, and his son came as a baby, grew into a man, and brought the kingdom of God back to the world. The truth is that this Jesus died on a cross resurrected, and conquered death and evil and sin and every power and authority therein. All, every single man, woman, child, every single nation, every single disease, every single demon, Satan himself, all must bow before him now. The truth is the apocalypse has happened in a real sense. The old world of sin is gone. The new world is come in Jesus. And this is how all the writers of the New Testament write. This is what all the prophets look forward to. And, and so that is where I think we need to start, is a correct eschatology, not as an eschatology meaning, oh, the study of last things, of what's going to happen to America in a couple of years, but like an eschaton, meaning where does the narrative of God's story, where does his history culminate? What does it lead to? And what we find here is that it culminates in Jesus, and it leads to his justice and his restoration of his good creation. Um, once and for all, and that 's really when we don 't have that down we, we we just think that last days is all this weird stuff and it needs to it needs to stop the left Behind series i mean you can like you can like those all you want to, but the fact remains is it 's not biblical like there 's nothing biblical about left Behind series whatsoever there 's nothing true about it there is no rapture coming um none of, none of this stuff is 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 true Israel is not even the israel we see in the Old Testament the Israel now that we have in in modern times I mean it's it's a nation that needs the gospel just like any other nation but for some reason there, there's a movement in, in America especially that Israel is the one nation we don't preach the gospel to we just really encourage their idolatry and hope that they rebuild a the temple it's ridiculous and it needs to stop so and that and that brings us to like our current I think uh, Colin has the article up, but we don't have to read the whole thing. I know it's not that long, but the current thing about this, the stock market's going to crash. There's going to be financial ruin, and and this huge thing's going to happen in the world. And it's going to be so bad that, you know what? It's probably possible that things are going to be so bad financially in the world that then Jesus will finally come back, as if that changes what the Bible says. It doesn't. It doesn't change what the Bible says. No matter how bad the financial stock market is, No matter whether or not your bank computers can process the year 2000 from 1999, no matter how many books talk about Jesus returning in 88 or in 89, no matter how popular a radio guy is who can get the rapture wrong 10, I don't know how many times he's predicted the rapture, we still must understand that it doesn't change what the Bible says. And so our problem is we need to know what the Bible says. And just like... Many epistles tell us in the New Testament, when we know God's word, we will not be so easily washed away by the waves, carried around by different waves and winds of doctrine, but Peter says that we won't be short sighted even the blindness, but we'll know
0: already done deal already
2: Here's what a Amer- American vision put out an article called the Shamita myths exposed a free report from American vision, and here's what it says: They're saying we can expect something big, a financial meltdown, social chaos, perhaps even the return of christ and they and they keep saying September f- two thousand fifteen they sound very persuasive, and even Christians with sound dr- doctrine are asking me if there's anything to it, since there's so much alarm and confusion in so little time that was sarcasm. I have decided to put together this free report on the subject in collaboration with some well-informed friends of American Vision. Settle the issue for yourself and your family with your friends with our free report today. And so you can go to the American Vision's website. The name of the article is The Shemitah Myths Exposed, and Shemitah is S-H-E-M-I-T-A-H. And they have you can look at the free report and download it, and I'll just read the section from the foreword which they have in this article. From the foreword. There is currently an explosion of interest in the Old Testament religious law of Shemitah thanks to books like Jonathan Cahn's The Harbinger. This widely popular book makes startling claims about catastrophic judgments. Give me a sec. This wildly popular book makes startling claims about catastrophic judgments and financial chaos allegedly backed up by convincing historical evidences. Coupled with the alleged coincidence of the Jewish Shemitah years, as well as the alleged blood moon phenomenon, which we've also recently been hyped, this message has unnecessarily confused and alarmed even many level-headed Christians. In fact, with the inclusion of historical evidences, even non-religious forecasters are joining the prediction circuit "...resulting in the shock and alarm of many in the secular world as well, especially the finan- financial in- industry. This excellent paper, which follows, and, w- and which I am proud to bring to you from a friend of mine, addresses the Shamita and Blood Moons issue specifically from historical, astronomical, and financial perspectives." While I let the main paper do most of the discussion for itself, in the brief forward, I make a few important observations on the religious side of the equation, as well as how this phenomenon has also recently been secularized and leveraged primarily, it appears, for personal financial gain. It is my concern to prevent Christians and many in the young libertarian audience as well from being duped into sales pitches with fears built on religious fantasy. It is my conclusion that the harbinger, the Blood Moon's materials, and the particular use they make of the Shemitah are unfortunately very misleading. Although the Harbinger in particular is presented in an engaging mystery format very similar to the Da Vinci Code, now that I think of it, the Harbinger is written with the same literary genre, fiction. As to accuracy in regards to Christianity, however, the two deserve the same assessment. And it's a free uh report thing that you can download. It's just a free ebook, so you can check that out and see what they have to say about it. It's pretty cool stuff.
1: Yeah, so just to, to inform the listeners in case they they've never heard of the Shemitah, it's the Sabbath year or the the sabbatical year, it's the seventh year of the seven year. It has to do with the agricultural cycle.
2: And and basic basically what people are saying is that something with the Shemitah, the Jewish Shemitah, lines up in the calendar with these four blood moon things that Hagee is talking about. And so it's like the end of the world. And so because it's the end of the world, like, you know, sell all your possessions and flee to the mountains because everything's going to fall apart right now. Fact of the matter is uh, the four blood moon thing that's, just to give you kind of a brief version, the four blood moon thing that's been happening, uh, you know, over the past year or two has actually happened like half a dozen other times uh, between... Christ's first advent in us, and to say that the blood moons line up with Jewish feasts is rather irrelevant because jewish the jewish uh calendar religious calendar is based off of the lunar cycle, and so they always fall on full moons, so for it to fall on a blood moon, which is where there's a where there's a um the moon has sort of an orange hue to it while the well the earth' shadow is cast on it. That's not abnormal at all. And in fact, you would expect that every single time there's a solar eclipse that it would fall on some Jewish holiday of some sort because that's just how the Jewish calendar works. It's a it's lunar calendar, so it always has um, full moons and new moons associated with different days. So,
3: Have you guys seen that? Maybe, maybe we can put it on the website, but the, uh, John Hagee, I guess, invited a astrophysicist on with him to do like an interview and the astrophysicist ended up like publicly like dismantling like his whole like his whole thing uh, let me pull this up
2: it says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light so that means the sun and the moon are going to be eclipsed at the same time which sounds super fun and you know kind of fantastical but it's physically impossible because a solar eclipse is when the moon is between the earth and the sun. And the lunar eclipse is when the earth is between the moon and the sun. And so you can't have the moon on two opposite sides of the planet at the same time.
3: Whoa, whoa, whoa.
1: You're, you're using that
3: science stuff. God is bigger than science. With God, all things are possible, Colin. How dare you doubt. <laughs> and it comes down to the scriptures. Like, Heggy, for all his years of looking at scripture and using them, has no clue has no understanding about how the Bible works and how it communicates. Like the Bible never like talks about stars falling and things coming in the cloud and the moon being darkened to talk about like actual natural phenomenon. Yeah. It's covenantal. It's apocalyptic. It's prophetic. But isn't that, isn't that Narnia
1: in the last battle? Don't the stars fall?
2: So it must be true. It must be. C.S. Lewis said it was true.
1: Yeah, it is.
2: C.S. Lewis Mm -hmm. also said purgatory is true, but we won't get into that. So yeah, when it talks when it talks about um, stars falling and stuff like that, the same exact language was used throughout the Old Testament uh, to talk about local judgments. Like when um, when Medo Persia in Isaiah thirteen, when um, the Medes were stirred up against Babylon, as it says in verse seventeen, uh, you go you scroll back up to verse I think ten and verse thirteen, somewhere around there, it says almost the exact same thing. It says the the heavens were shaken, and the the constellations fell out of their place, and the stars uh, ceased shining, and the foundations of the earth were shaken. Well, none of that literally happened when Babylon was overthrown by the Medo Persians. That's not that's not what actually physically happened. But the purpose of that sort of language is to describe the um, the powers of the heavens of Babylon. So the you know the sun, the moon, and the stars those are the you know the lights in the heavens well the lights in the heavens of babylon were cast down so that's like the the political and religious leadership structure was destroyed and then the powers of the earth being shaken that's like you know even the even the people of the the citizens were even affected by it that's what that sort of thing is talking about we see the same sort of um language in the New Testament, of course in the Book of Revelation and in like the Olivet Discourse. Uh, but understanding how it's used in the Old Testament, we have to look at those things and not necessarily expect it to be speaking about the you know, the end of the world. Because I 'cause if I mean if we tried to take it literally for a moment, um, if one star were to fall from the heavens to the earth, the earth would be destroyed instantaneously because even even the smallest star is bigger than the earth and is going to completely, you know, incinerate it because stars are like the sun.
1: Colin, Colin, Colin. All things are possible. What part of all things are possible, don't you understand? You need to understand when to understand things one way.
2: Okay, so let's go to Revelation 12 for a second. So we've got a giant fireproof woman who is standing on the moon giant fireproof woman who's standing on the moon. She's wearing the sun as clothing and she has stars as her helmet. Okay. And then there's, and then there's a dragon and then there's a fire breathing dragon with seven heads. And its tail is so big that it destroys one third of the stars in the universe. So we have a tail that is physically larger than any other object known to existence because it would destroy a third of, we,
3: we have a very lopsided, Lopsided dragon.
2: Yeah, very large tail. And he is going to somehow pursue this giant fireproof woman who's pregnant, and she's going to give birth. And then the dragon spews rivers out of his mouth, trying to... cat. Like, that's really what's going to happen. That's... I mean, all things are po- possible, so it's literal. Right? I mean, all things are possible, guys.
3: If I can play this real quick. The... The, the the imagery, which is not hard for me to do. The imagery, though, in Revelation, no one really believes that an actual dragon is going to go after a fireproof woman. We just believe that actual stars are going to fall.
2: The funniest thing about that, like, I say that, like, super heavy satire. The strange thing is, like, no dispensationalist looks at that passage and says it's a literal giant fireproof woman. They say the giant fireproof woman is Israel and... Uh, you know, like it's obviously Israel with the this depiction of the 12 stars and the sun and the moon. That's like just like Joseph's dream. And I'm like, why didn't you say that like five chapters ago? Like, I don't understand. And then when it talks about the dragon who like took with him, like took a third of this cast, a third of the stars from heaven to earth. They say, oh, that's because Satan took a third of the angels. And so a third of the angels became demons. They're fallen angels. And I was like, why didn't, why didn't you interpret it that way like five chapters ago? Like it's like, oh, the sun and the moon are falling out of the sky that's literally gonna happen five chapters later. oh, it's talking about angels and Israel and stuff like it doesn't it doesn't make sense it's like like you guys said, you pick and choose
1: so I, I downloaded the uh the PDF of that report from American vision just right now, and I was looking at the, I was looking at Joel's uh forward to it, and he makes an interesting point um he's talking about He says the heading to the section is no, no one today celebrates Shemitah, Shemitah, whatever, however you pronounce it. Um, Because it was, it, it was a ritual. It was a ritual thing. And obviously theonomy would say anything, you know, the ceremonial law, all that stuff was was fulfilled in Christ. It's being fulfilled in Christ. So we don't, that's part of the law. We don't, we're, we're obligated to fulfill, but he's doing it for us. And so he's saying, you know, that's, that's part of all that. And even Paul talks about it. Um, in Colossians and talking about um you know that no one passed judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So all these things that, that uh were shadows of the things to come, it it's funny that, that they would cling to these things. They would they would they would look at the law and say, No, no, like they would look at theonomy and say, No, that's that's wrong. It's all we don't need to worry about that anymore. Jesus is doing it for it. all that stuff, whatever. You know, I've all fulfilled, ignored all the law. But then, except this one thing, they would go back and say, "But this, you know, this is actually still good, and this this is actually still applicable." So they would actually go to the ritual side of the law, which is the one thing that we would say is is not, uh, you know, needing we we don't need to fulfill, we don't need to 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 do. That's the one thing that in here in this point that they're actually saying that is applicable still.
2: That's a fascinating point too. Um, I believe there are some hyper dispensationalists who believe they are theonomists with regard to Israel. So they think that Israel needs to follow the Mosaic law, but not us because we're not Israel. So like even to this day, they would say that, you know, Israel is in rebellion and apostasy because they don't have a temple. And that's why they need to build one again, because they have to have those because they're Israel. They have to have a temple. So the whole, you know, the temple of his body thing, and the whole you guys are a holy temple, living stones. Peter, or I think it's First Peter two, Ephesians, Ephesians two. Like none of that matters, like that because that's all for Christians. That's not for Jews. That's just for Christians.
1: Yeah. If you got, if you got any friends or family, I was real quick plug for American Vision. If you have any friends or family that are eating up all this stuff, download that report and
2: email it to them. They have it. They have it set up on the web page to like email it to or forward it to friends and family. So,
1: yeah, do that. And when you when you check out, uh, it gives you the option to donate some money. Um, so be sure to throw you know five ten bucks. Skip a cup of coffee tomorrow and give them five bucks.
3: Yeah, definitely take care of them. Also, I would I'd highly recommend a book that really, uh, really affected me and helped me a lot. Last Days Madness by Gary Demar. It's. Uh, I mean, he he really deals a lot with dispensationalism and in Israel and temple and the signs, the apocalyptic language. Um, it's a it's a really it's a must read uh, for for I think any anyone who has been who's grown up in this like dispensational like kind of left behind type of thing, which I think is most of us. Um, so I definitely recommend that.
1: Yeah, I'll put a link to that in the in the description. Link to that book.
2: Gary is actually a really cool guy when it comes to um discussing things on social media. He will, he does is not above like random Joe Schmo dispensationalist guy who just like reads Schofield's notes and that's all he knows. He he will totally have a conversation with them on Facebook. It's kind of fun.
1: Well if anybody is listening to this and uh wants to help us out, reach out to if you know Gary, reach out to him, send him a message. Um, or if you know the apology, you guys send them a message, encourage them to send him a message for us on our behalf.
2: So the next thing that we were going to talk about, which, uh, we talked about a little bit last week, actually. Or maybe it was a couple weeks ago. We talked about persecution and how persecution relates to that postmill. Does persecution disprove that postmill? Does does postmill ignore the passages in the New Testament that talk about the persecution in the life of the believer? And we walked through a handful of passages and we were running short on time. So I intentionally left off a passage in Acts because our very own John Howell um, I believe, did you say you did a sermon on this?
3: I just recently, uh, my, my most recent sermon was on Acts 9, on the uh, conversion of Saul, of Tarsus. Um, but I, Yeah, I've spent a lot of, t- you know, basically when I say i spent a lot of time in Luke and Acts, that just means that I just get dumber every time I study it. And um, I just realize more and more how amazing uh, that text is. But I did, I did, my church, Grace Church of Dunedin, we did do a study series through it. Um, it was a community group, a study group thing that we did on Wednesday nights, uh, through the Lucan narrative that lasted for a few months. But, um, but yeah, I just, I don't know why I just, I've always found myself providentially and through circumstance and different things like placed before Luke and acts. And, um, it's like the Lord's always trying to have me focus on it. So I just really, I have a lot of, I have a huge heart and passion for, for the Lucan narrative, which is the gospel of Luke and acts and, um, when it comes to persecution, it's a huge motif and theme in that narrative.
2: And so how does how does that relate to or conflict with postmillennialism?
3: <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, well, f- uh, your question was what does that have to do with postmillennialism? Yeah,
2: how does, how does that relate to postmillennialism? Because a lot of people, especially people who are unfamiliar with postmillennialism or who disagree with it for one reason or another, they tend to – View postmillennialism as downplaying persecution. So how does it relate to postmillennialism?
3: Now that, well, that's that's a huge misunderstanding. Actually, um, you know, I love my pastor very much, but he uh, Sunday morning um, briefly uh, he 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 did a sermon out of uh, Revelation one, and he briefly mentioned different millennial views. And when he came when he mentioned postmillennialism. Uh basically basically he left out the part which I think is the most important part of post millennial post millennial thought, and that is that we believe that Christ is currently and actively reigning in his kingdom now. And so we need to take that to heart. And um to answer the question from the Lucan narrative perspective, Luke writes um this work, um Luke and Acts from a, from a perspective that a new reality has recently been introduced into the world. Um, if you really look at what Luke believes, it's very different than um, a lot of the... Like we can do all the social historical studies of the ancient Mediterranean world and Second Temple culture all we want to. And Luke will still come out of it looking like a nut job. Because Luke believes that the end of the world has come. He believes that a great apocalypse has happened. And a lot of us don't look at Luke and Acts and realize that, but when we look at the prophetic references in Luke and Acts, when we look at how he structures the narrative of Jesus's ministry, when we look at how, when we look at the structure which we're going to look at actually specifically of Acts as a whole, um, how, it's, how it's the ministry of Jesus continued, the culmination of history being manifest in the church. Um, When we look at all those things, we realize that Luke really believed that when Christ came, particularly at his crucifixion and resurrection, the kingdom of God exploded on the world, his enemies were defeated, and a new reality had come. Basically, the end of the the world as he knew it had ended um, in the work and victory of Jesus. So this great apocalypse and all these things that have taken place, um, Luke believes in a real sense that that has happened, that the world has come to an end. Um, when Jesus came and basically created, it, it's the gardener creating a new one. And I know we get that from John, but um, that, that reference is also, I think, apparent in Luke. But, so post-millennial thought is that Jesus is victoriously reigning over his creation, over all the nations, over pe- all peoples. He really has no, he has no competition that has not yet been dealt with. He has no, there's no, there are rebels, there are there is still rebellion against him, but it's already been crushed because the greatest enemy Paul says in Romans 1, he was declared to be the son of God at his resurrection from the dead because he faced death itself and he conquered it. And every power that is less than death, which is really, according to Romans 5, we can kind of logically conclude that death is the greatest thing that this kingdom of sin had. It's what terrorized and paralyzed people. It marred God's image, vandalized it, destroyed his image bearers. Um, it. Paul says that death is was the way through which sin reigned over us and over the world so when death was defeated at the resurrection of jesus we can we know that that greatest authority that sin had fell which means that every authority and power has fallen with it so we see certain basically to set up acts in luke we see certain things that are set up that we don't really get satisfied in or some 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 um some writers and authors call this a narrative need. There are certain narrative needs that are uh, that are created in Luke that unless we read through Acts, we'll, we will never be satisfied on. One of these comes in Luke chapter 1. Let me get there, I think. Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 50, actually 51. Uh, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. So this idea that the Messiah is going to come, and keep in mind, this is, this is, uh, this is the message to Mary, right? And Mary's being told that this, that this Jesus in her womb will bring kings off of their thrones and he will exalt the lowly. So this is like, this is not just imagery here. This is like something that is messianic. It's prophetic, it's, it's Isaiah, it's Ezekiel, it's Daniel, it's, uh, it's Habakkuk. It's, it's, it's so entrenched in the scriptures, we can't escape the fact that if Jesus is Messiah, this is something that he's going to have to do and accomplish. Um, and so we see this actually become uh, more evident in Acts, when we read uh, about actually a literal ruler, for example, being killed where he sits. Uh, We see that the Roman Empire, no matter what they do, they cannot stop the spread of this thing. Specifically, the Jewish leadership under the great first persecutor and enemy of the church, the murderer, Saul of Tarsus, cannot stop Philip from planting a church in Samaria. He cannot stop the gospel. And so we see here that the narrative need or the anticipation of Jesus being this mighty warrior king, we see it come to fruition in Acts. And Paul will expound upon this as well in like Colossians 2 when he talks about that the crucifixion of Jesus was really his defeating of his enemies. They thought they defeated him, but really he humiliated them and put them to shame, open public shame. Um, the mighty empire, in a real sense, began to fall, eschatologically fell when they murdered the Son of God. Um, so just look at uh, the narrative structure. I, I, anyway, does that answer your question? <laughs> I don't
2: know. That's a, that's a really good framework uh, to kind of set it up. So what I'm getting, and you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, is that in the early church, the very early church, the greatest persecutor of the faith was Saul, and he... Was converted to be the great one of the greatest, uh, you know, tools of God against the devices of Satan. How does how does that same theme play out throughout the Book of Acts, or or does it does it shift at all to something more? Because like, I I hear people say things like the that persecution is the seed of the church, or something like that, where it's like you know the blood the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. That's how she grows.
3: The blood of the martyrs is to save the church.
2: I think I've heard you say that before. How does how does that relate to to Luke's narrative in Acts and 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 how that the the persecution of the church plays out with the spread of the gospel?
3: Absolutely. Uh, that it, it's I think it's important to understand that, that quote comes from the first century, I believe. Um, and man, I gotta it, it's been repeat. I know it was repeated by Augustine, but he's not the first one that said it. So I'm thinking either Justin Martyr or um, maybe even earlier. But basic, the, the point is is that one of the bishops and leaders of the church who said that was later on himself <laughs> uh, martyred. Um, and I think that's powerful to know that. Um, and yeah, I, I hear you typing, so you can look that up as for, for our listeners. But uh, what we see here in the Acts uh, of the Apostles is we see Volume 2 of the Lucan Narrative. Um, and it's easy to see the connection. We can see it uh, directly through its address to Theophilus, which is a cool thing to get into, which we won't right now, who that is or what that is, what that means. Um, a lot of theories and debate on that. But look at the, just the narrative structure of Acts, I believe is set up for us in the beginning, in the first chapter, when we look at um, this, the questions of the apostles. They questioned the risen Christ before his ascension. And let's just look at that really quick. Um, In verse three, um, to these, he presented himself alive after a suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Which makes sense because keep in mind what he's ta- the context of what he's telling them the 40 days according to verse three is things concerning the kingdom of God. In verse seven, we pick up again. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth, or the ends of the earth. So I, I, I make a case, and I'm not alone, like I think this is a huge position of the church for, for a long time, is that in verse 8 we see that, that there's a narrative structure to Acts. And that is that what Acts is going to show us is how Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, And through, which we'll see later on, I'm going to make, we can easily make the point through persecution of his church, is um, that they begin in Jerusalem. We see Pentecost happens in Jerusalem. And he says, I want you to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, but also in all of Judea. So we see that under the persecution of of Saul, the first enemy of the church, there's a great persecution in Jerusalem. That pushes all the saints out. If you look at Acts chapter 8, after the death of Stephen, in Acts chapter 8, we see that all the saints basically are run out of Jerusalem. The only saints that stay behind, according to the text, are those who are concerned to take care of the body of Stephen, who was just killed. So that's a huge thing that Paul did, Saul of Tarsus. Like, obviously a violent, bloody, scary man um, who is being used to do something at first, seemed very dastardly and hopeless. Um, but Jesus isn't done there. He wants them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, but also in Samaria. And we see this as well. We see that Philip, who is who becomes a deacon with Stephen, the first martyr, they're both called to the same thing. And what we learn from this is that we will be called to do great things for the gospel. Sometimes the result will be like Stephen, but sometimes the result will be like Philip, where Philip goes to Samaria, where according to the Lucan narrative, he has already um, he has already been through Samaria. He goes there. John also has a pretty crazy account of that. But what we see is that Philip goes to Samaria, and a church is the result. There's a go- the gospel cannot be stopped. So Jesus Jesus's words are being obeyed. His command to them to be witnesses here, here, and here strategically are being obeyed, and. I'll get to the point on that in a second. And then, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So Jesus is saying, and I believe that Acts is going to reveal this ripple effect of the gospel. That when the Pentecost comes, it's like a stone dropping into water. Uh, and then as the ripples continue, this is the gospel spreading until all the earth is enveloped with the kingdom of God. So if we, if we go through Acts, we can demonstrate that this is the case. I've already hinted at it in Acts chapter 8. But if we look at Acts chapter 7, and also, I mean, we don't need to skip any of this. I mean, we can, Peter's sermon is all about this. Peter is already uh, basically letting everyone know that the Holy Spirit has come. Therefore, now we mean business and the whole world belongs to Christ. Um, That this Messiah who was crucified is the actual Messiah. Um, He is, and he's calling for Israel to repent. And also, um, interestingly enough, though he has problems with it later on, Peter's actually also... um, in, in view of many, mostly Jews, but many who speak all types of languages and everything. So we see this understanding already of how powerful the witness is to be. Um, and so we see the narrative of Peter for a while where they're imprisoned and they're arrested. Uh, we see in Acts chapter six, the choosing of the seven um, of, of, of these deacons to help the apostles and, and certain things. Stephen and Philip are among those. And then we see in Acts chapter seven where Stephen is brought, who who is a, a devout, he's called devout, He's brought before the high priest in the sanhedrin and he basically uh, rebukes them. he rebukes them for for destroying Jesus just like they destroyed all the prophets and we see that this kind of really offended them not kind of but it cut them to the heart. They were gnashing at their teeth. they drag him out of the temple or they drag him out of the city even and they stone him and during the stoning we see that there are people who put their cloaks, at the feet of a young man named Saul, and we know that Saul wasn't a—he uh, wasn't a coat check for the people that were killing Stephen. He was there. At, uh, the fact that they were putting his cloaks down was to show that he would see them as a witness. Paul was there as a rising star in Judaism. He was there as an authority and the superintendent and designer, I believe, of Stephen's murder itself. Um, he murdered Stephen, but that's not enough. He continues to go on in Acts chapter eight and a great persecution arises. And we see that it is in verse 3, three, eight, three, that Saul is ravaging the church. So persecution happens. Now the result of this persecution is what? Verse four, therefore, based on the, per, based there, what's it, therefore, Bible study 101, because of this great persecution led by Saul of Tarsus in which everyone runs out of Jerusalem except for those who are attending to Stephen. Therefore, those who have been scattered went about preaching the word. Right. <laughs> so all, all you've done, it's like crushing a mama's spider when she has babies on her back. All you're doing is spreading those spiders out a little bit quicker and a little bit earlier than they would, but a lot faster and a lot more ferociously. And this is what we can see through like a historical understanding. And then look, verse five, Philip went down to the city of Samaria where Jesus told him to go and began proclaiming Christ to them. So bottom line is, did not get too long, the persecution of the church or is ordained of God and called of Christ himself, even though he sees it, which he'll tell Paul, as a persecution against himself. But the persecution is for the purpose of his witness in the world. That Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem is scattered to preach the the word according to the design of Christ because of the persecution that is ordained that they suffer. And that's, that's one big point. And we see this all throughout Acts, ironically um, and I use the word ironically, I think too much, but providentially, because God is so wise and so great, we see that this great enemy of Saul is brought low, that he's brought to the ground, which is a biblical imagery as well. It's a defeated enemy already. He asks, "Who are you, sir? Who are you, Lord?" And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We see how close Christ is with his people. We see this image in Revelation, how no martyr, no saint who has been killed for the faith will go unavenged because it is Christ himself who has been offended. It is Christ himself who has been persecuted. So Paul is judged. Um, He is accused by Christ. He knows he is guilty, but he is not crushed. Instead, we see down in verse 15, he tells Ananias, who I think it's funny, he argues with God. Um, he wants to make sure God knows what's happening a whole 160 miles away in Jerusalem. Um, but he, but we see that God tells him go for he Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and Kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So the calling of Paul, the one who caused suffering is to suffer for his namesake. Why? Because this is what it means to be a witness. This is what it means for the kingdom to come through you. This is what it means for the kingdom to expand. Is the suffering and the persecution for the name of Christ. Now, what we see is that all up to this point, from Acts 1 to Acts 9, that the gospel is spread like wildfire through Judea and Samaria. And even now at this point to Damascus, because of persecution. That is why it's happened. Now to doubt millennium post-millennial understanding um, of the victory of Christ I think is really hard to do when you put persecution in that perspective. That persecution is what it means to follow Christ in a real sense. This is how the church expands. This is how the church definitely enacts. It's shown that there would not have been a church in Samaria unless Philip was pushed there. Because of the persecution by Saul in Jerusalem. And that is not just an isolated incident. We see that that's how it happens throughout all of Acts. The great persecutor Paul ends up in the end of Acts, in, at the end of the earth, <laughs> as a witness of the gospel. That is amazing. And that is um, probably one of the most brief uh, overviews of Acts I've done. But just focusing on the narrative structure that Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria and all of the earth. And then we read through Acts and we see that's exactly what happens because of the persecution of the church. And yet, though there's persecution, there are great victories. Though there are persecution, there is still expanding. There is still conquering of God's enemies, whether it be cities and towns and demons and diseases, or whether it be even the greatest enemy of the church, Saul himself, who then, he arrives at Damascus like he planned, with authority from the chief priests, but this time instead of when he rise, when, when he finally arrives at Damascus, those papers he received from Jerusalem mean nothing to him. he has a new authority he has a new commission from Christ himself and he is strengthened by the community of faith we see that Ananias who hates him <laughs> who fears him, eventually repents and calls him brother, baptizes him, strengthens him, and then we see that Paul goes out into Damascus. People are expecting him, Ananias knew he was coming. They are expecting him, but they weren't expecting him. Because the Saul of Tarsus that persecuted Christ and destroyed the church in Jerusalem, supposedly, was brought low and defeated. Just like all all of God's enemies are. Death itself has been defeated. How can Saul of Tarsus stand up to him? And Saul's conversion in Acts chapter nine is in uh, the midst of many conversion narratives, if you look at this, we see the um, we see the Ethiopian, right? The Ethiopian comes to Christ. We see that later on, Cornelius comes to Christ. Um, we see uh, the Gentiles hear good news from Peter in ten thirty four, and in the smack in the middle of that is this conversion of Saul. And I think that it's narrative, uh, narratively genius that it's in that place because. After this uh, kind of after Acts chapter 10, it really becomes a story about how God's used this enemy of Christ, which he converted just like he did the eunuch, just like he did Cornelius, just like he did the Gentile. It's no thing for Jesus to conquer even the mighty Saul and then commission him and tell him, like he said, you were persecuting me. You were my enemy, but now you're mine. Go into the city and I will tell you what you must do. So we see this understanding in Acts that what happens even in the midst of persecution is that God takes over the lives of those he calls. His enemies become former enemies and heirs, but they are slaves nonetheless. And he sends them to do one thing, and that is to be heralds and witnesses of him. And that is no different than us. It's no different than anyone. And so whether you're post-millennial or not, we need to understand that Christ is reigning and he's king. Now, if you believe that, then you a be post mill. no. But you must believe that Jesus is reigning and ruling now, and that if you believe in Christ, if you have faith, it's not just so you can read theology books and enjoy good beer and grow a beard. It's so you can be a witness and a testimony, because like Paul, you are his chosen instrument. That's what saint means, to be set apart for his purposes. That's what holy means. Holiness is not primarily a pietism. It is a usefulness to the one who is holy. And we have to understand this. So, The narrative structure of Acts, I believe, demonstrates that Christ's kingdom and his reign presently and now cannot be stopped or thwarted, and indeed persecution is a means through which his kingdom expands.
2: So I just wanted to – I found found that quote actually a rather – a little bit longer quote. Uh, it's from Tertullian, actually, from his Apologetum Quinti Tertulliani Contra Paganos De Ignorantia in Christo Iesu Explicit, which is the fifth apology of Tertullian against the pagans who are ignorant of Christ Jesus.
3: Greatest <laughs> title ever, dude.
2: Yeah, I think, I think it's more commonly known as just Apologetus, uh, Apola- or, or wait, no, uh, Apolog- Apologeticum or Apologeticus or something like that. But anyway... You can look that up. It's Tertullian's Apology is the common common name. Uh, here's what he says in it. You say we are just another spin off of philosophy then. Well, why don't you persecute your philosophers then when they say the gods are fake or bark against the emperors? Perhaps it is because the name of philosopher does not drive out demons like Christian does. We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill us, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endure pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. When you you chose recently to hand a Christian girl over to a brothel keeper rather than to the lions you showed, you knew we counted chastity dearer than life. And also, apparently, he has a section where he talks about abortion and infanticide, which I thought was really fascinating. Um, He says here, "...to us murder is once for all forbidden, so even the child in the womb, while yet the mother's blood is still being drawn on to form the human being, it is not lawful for us to destroy. To forbid birth is only quicker murder. It makes no difference whether one take away the life once born or destroy it as it comes to birth." He is a man who is to be a man. The fruit is always present in the seed.
3: But that's dope. That needs to be put on the site.
2: I thought that was a pretty impressive early church view on abortion, which, I mean, like we think of abortion as like a modern issue that the church is just dealing with nowadays. But uh, it's, you know, obviously even in the early church, they were dealing with
3: abortion. So Yeah, so, I mean, I, and, and Tertullian is speaking from a place where, I mean, he's, it's it's evident that still at his point in history, you know later on he's that that's still how the church is fighting.
2: Yeah, so he's so he's writing in the late second, early third century. So near the uh in, around when he wrote the Apology, uh persecution against Christians was really 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 heavy, but as time went on, there was more and more things like what he wrote, the apology that he wrote that were to the emperors and the emperors became a little bit more, um, a little bit more lenient to Christians. They would still persecute them and consider them, uh, a false religion, but they weren't as harsh towards the end of his life. And then very suddenly, uh, the emperor Constantine was converted to Christ. And because he was converted, he, uh legalized Christianity and by legalize he he made it um he made it an acceptable one of the many religions of Rome and very shortly thereafter called the con- the council of Nicaea which more clearly defined what the views of the church were against some heresies that had spread it up around the time and then um very shortly after the council of nicaea within within 50 years or so i think there was a the legalization of christianity was or the legalization was made under constantine and then very shortly thereafter it was made the official religion of the roman empire and so the um when he says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church like that, like, actually happened in a major way. Like, it, it was like the church was being killed and slaughtered, and then all of a sudden, like, a century later, it's the official religion of the Roman Empire. So definitely, definitely, uh, I mean, that postmill right there, although that was, you know, hundreds of years ago.
3: But Yeah, and I think, I mean, what other way, what other way is there to, to really understand persecution if you don't understand that it is the seat of the church? If you don't understand that persecution is actually a means of victory, I don't really under. What other ways can you? What how else can you justify it as God's will and as biblical?
2: That was really good, John. That was really helpful.
3: We do have just to
1: let people know we do have your web your sermon um, on the website. It's in the podcast feed. Um, So yeah, definitely check it out.
3: Yeah, the sermon itself is the sermon. The sermon itself is pretty much an exposition of Acts nine one through twenty, where I discuss um saw the enemy defeated and also Ananias um basically Ananias uh the needing to repent. <laughs> so um and and he does do that. So it's it's yeah, it's a uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback on that sermon. I've been really humbled by it. Um some people have told me that they 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 were uh, really affected by it in my community. So I hope it, hope it blessed you guys too, man. Praise God.
2: Cool. Awesome. Thanks, man. That was really great. So persecution is dat postmill. I mean, if that's not if that's not a curveball for you all mills, I don't know what is. So uh, that was that was some good stuff. Uh, you can you can find us on the internet at datpostmill.com. You can find us on Facebook, datpostmill. Follow us on Twitter at datpostmill. And if you really want us to have better better service on our on our website which um which directly affects the podcast feed on iTunes please give us some money it doesn't have to be a lot of money it doesn't take a lot of money to 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 get a fairly regular feed going but you know just if you know 10 people or so gave a little bit of money we would be able to make a podcast infinitely more accessible more readily accessible find the donate button on the website give us some love we don't want we don't want your money. We just want you guys to have some good podcasting. So
1: right and definitely interact with us on on social media. We uh we did a post the other day that was uh just that meme about adopting a child should not cost more than a boarding one. We have uh, as of now we've it's reached ten thousand over ten thousand people have seen that, and we have like hundred and twenty six people have shared it and yeah it's definitely the furthest reaching post of anything we've done. That's just on Facebook. Um, so just think about, think about what we're posting online. We want it to be productive and we want to be helpful. And that's just a very simple, easy way to get, get the truth in front of, you know, other believers and not unbelievers, you know, get spread the truth out. That's very easily to have it just show up in their feed and get them thinking about it. We, uh, we, you know, we definitely don't have, um, as large scale of an operation as Apologia Radio does. But obviously you see they their Marcus is putting stuff out I mean every day. They're doing videos. Yeah, the Apology Empire is just they're putting out a lot of good stuff. And that's that's what we all need to be doing is we need to be liking, commenting, sharing. Our stuff, their stuff, anything anything post mail. Spread the word. Like, comment, share it. Do uh retweet it on on uh on Twitter. Did you, did you know we're on Instagram? We're on Instagram. Yep, same you were I think we have only like three Pictures just because I just haven't, it's hard to get her. It's just another thing to be posting stuff on, but yeah. So just that post mail, same, same as Twitter, one word, one L. But I mean, that's how, that's how, that's how a word. If you, if you like the podcast, I mean, just to be honest, you know, we, we can, we can try to plug ourselves. If you like the, if you like the podcast and you've gotten some stuff out of it, we've been getting a lot of emails from people. We're super, really encouraging. So we appreciate that. Um, people are liking it. And if you do like it, um, you know, it's just simple tips when you're on Instagram and you do a post something about us or you share something we've done, you know, hashtag that postmail but hashtag whatever else is relevant to it. Cause then when people are searching, you know, uh hashtag abortion, then they're also going to, you're going to see our picture show up in the feed and they'll see hashtag that postmail and all the stuff, you know, people f- go down rabbit trails with, with all that stuff. So definitely um, be thinking about us when you're on all your social media sites and interact with us, share it, ask questions. That's what we're there for. So get the word out. On iTunes too, give us some, give us some reviews. We've had, we've had some good ones, um, rate and review us. That helps get our, our, um, our icons, you know, showing up further up in the feed for popular podcasts. gets, gets the word out more. Um, one thing I was thinking too, maybe to, to encourage people to, to donate some money is maybe we could allow people to sponsor an episode where they say, say you donate 10 bucks, 20 bucks. I don't know, whatever, 10 bucks. Um, We'll sponsor an episode for you, or whoever you want it to be sponsored to. We'll just give you a shout out. And-
2: if you donate a hundred dollars, we will have you on an episode. I totally stole that. That was a joke. I stole that from the Reform Podcast. Nobody laughed at that. That was. I was really sad. I
3: don't think that. I don't think that's a bad idea. If you though. if you donate
1: a hundred dollars, we you, we will have we'll have you on. Also, I wanna I wanna plug one more too. I wanna plug Reconstructionist Radio. I just thought about them the other day. But uh, they're doing some awesome stuff. Um, Jason Sanchez he got permission from um, Calcedon, Calcedon, um and Gary North all the, we, to to make all their books, everything in their library, into audiobooks. They got free reign, and so they're recruiting people right now to um, record themselves. So if you have a if you have a, a nice radio voice or you just want to help out um, and you have the ability to record yourself, um, preferably in a decent quality, but uh, if you have the time and the the desire to rec- just read books just read it out loud and then re- get that recorded and send it in send that in there they're uh, they've got quite a few up um on the website it's reconstructionistradio.com um and that's kind of part of Jason's whole empire that he's building with postmo report and all that, that all that fun stuff but they've got um th- as they people submit um chapters um they'll he'll post it up there so like R.J. Rush Rushdone's by what standard. You can read you can listen to the intro in chapter one or just the preface of The Foundations of Social Order by Rush Duny. Um but there's some some good stuff that are people have already done complete books on there. Um and it's I think it's it's brilliant. It's it's awesome. I I think it the idea probably stemmed off of his truck driver theologian. So when you're on for all the people on the road, especially, you know, always listening to podcasts and audiobooks, what a great way. I mean, I would have loved this when I was driving you know, eight hours a day to listen to a buck a day. Um, and it's for free. So how cool is that? So if you want to help out, um, go to reconstructionistradio.com. Um, reach out to, they're on, they got a Facebook page, reach out, reach out to Jason. I'm sure you can contact them on that page or post a report. Some way you can get a hold of them. And um, I think you can click on volunteer narrators and he's got a list of books that you can do and reach out to him, help him out. Um, that would be awesome. So hopefully I'll, Soon I'll be getting around to working on his uh, his websites, um, make it easy. I've actually had I've planning on making it um, helping him out to make it easier to actually be able to listen to the books instead of having to download one huge audio file, but uh, to actually set it up in a podcast format so you can subscribe to Reconstructionist Radio podcast and then you every you know whether each one is a book so you can you know easily pause it or split it up in chapters or whatever. Um, but yeah. So I want to help him out. But if you guys want to help him out, I'm sure he could, you know, he's got a family. So if you want to help him out, you know, even donate some money to help him with his time or just volunteer to record some books. All right. Well, keep hashtagging that post now.
0: I like that. Hey, Knox, I know what you was doing, man, when you was doing all this, but I <laughs> know one. Let's go Walk, talk, eat, drink, sleep, dream. Gospel Wake, pray, pray, read, dress, work, think Gospel Press, fellowship, yes, church, hear, see Gospel, everything Gospel Everywhere, everywhere